Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. I've been a Muslim since 2004. I've been writing poetry since I was 17. And I've attempted to create some divine or sacred poems. And many of them have been published over the years. They've echoed my different inclinations towards agnosticism, Buddhism, anthroposophy, towards being a Christian, and in the last 12 years, towards Islamic revelations. Though I believe devoted persons of many contrasting applications of faith or spiritual practices or exercises are in pursuit of a very similar goal. I use the phrase dancing words to show the delicate and varied rhythms that move through divine or sacred poetry. But we should know that the dancing words are veiled. Their secrets are guarded. We may find it hard to access them. In this way, reading and reciting such poetry is an act of worship. Attempting to write it can increase a person's spiritual practice. Who knows where the dance will lead you? We daily think of protecting who and what we are, and divine poetry requests that we give that up at once, without a qualm. Everything is divine, since everything comes from the breath of Allah, the Creator. He speaks in an is. He says, be, and it exists. Kud faha quam. So all poetry is divine. But some highlight and make explicit human beings' quest, pursuit, longing for the divine, for a closer relationship between humanity and its creator. The three examples we are exploring offer different cultural and traditional ways to approach the eternal presence, to take steps beyond the everyday, to be receptive to a less obvious reality. The Psalms, the haiku of Basho, the quatrains of the Rubaiyat, ask us to give more time to the unseen and less to the seen, more time and space to the mystical unknown and less to the practical world, to use our brief span of life to reach a higher state of being, to be more conscious, sensitive, and committed to other realities. The Psalms perform this role. They offer a personalized connection between the speaker, poet, singer, and his or her creator, God, or in Jewish, Yahweh. They contain the belief that God hears our supplication if we are patient, faithful. Hears always, hears when we think he isn't listening. The Psalms celebrate the way of goodness against the persistence of evil. 
the enduring constellations of a virtuous life. The haiku and haibon of the Japanese master Basho stress in a transpersonal way the significance of meditation, stillness, and acceptance. How these actions change creatively the potential of the world around us, giving us glimpses of what he called the everlasting self, which is poetry. I don't know what that means. That is a wonderful thing about divine or sacred writing. At times, you just don't know what it means. You haven't reached the point where you can access it. Basho believed there is a permanent and unchallengeable element in poetry. This quality and his intention to write, to achieve poetic truth, imitates the divine. The Rubaiyat attacks constantly our favorism to this, this material world by illustrating through beautiful, ironic, and often humorous conceits what a short time we have here. So grasp this lovely moment and use it wisely. The poems emphasize the search for divine intoxication, using the image of wine to reveal how this intoxication, this love of life, can lead to silencing fears from the past and fears of the future. This love can lead to a human being becoming one with the Creator, absorbed in the love of Allah, subhanahu wa What a high ideal that is. So I hope I, I'm going to be a little bit more uh, subversive and say, if you have any questions, you can ask them, well, I am speaking, or as I pause. Okay? You can do that if you want to. Because how much do you know about the Psalms? How much do you know about haiku? How much do you know about the Rubaiyat? I don't know. So I'm very much just going to give brief kind of introductions to these, give you examples, but you might be interested in things very different than what I'm interested in. And I'm here for you. I'm not here for me. So the Psalms, or Sabur. According to Islam, the Psalms of the prophet Daud Dawah, or King David, is one of the holy books revealed by God before the Quran. The term Sabur is used by Christians in the Middle East and the south of Asia. Sabur means song, music. The Psalms were meant to be sung and were used in the liturgical procedures, in the services in the temple of Jerusalem. King David, the prophet Dao, who was believed to receive these divine revelations of the Psalms, was reigning in power between about 1010 and to 970 
before the current era, which used to be called B.C., and now it's called B.C.E. Da'ud, the prophet, is mentioned 16 times in the Quran. Now, the Jewish exile to Babylon begins in 597 B.C.E. And the exiles were permitted to return to Jerusalem around about 516. And the construction of the second temple was between 520 and 515. That's when it started. Now, why am I giving you these dates? Because the Psalms could go back as early as King David or the prophet Dual. And there are psalms that are about the exile. So that is almost 500 years of poetry. And what is so amazing about this is the similarity in rhythm, language, and metaphor between the psalms. That this group of writing could be codified, collected, and seemed to stand as if it was written by one person. That is amazing to me. And they could be used again and again through many upheavals in Israel's history. And they went on to be used in the Christian services as well. And I have experienced that. And they are modified slightly, or shall I say, some of the more lurid, Horrific things are taken out because they can be horrific. So it's not surprising that some people think the Psalms were written by King David or by the prophet Baal. But he did not live on the earth 500 years. Now think of the English example of going back from 2000 to 1900, 1800, 1700, 1600, 1500, and how much has English poetry changed over that period of time? And here we have a body of work that can hold the same sort of ethos over 500 years. Now forgive me, I get excited about these things because I think that's miraculous. And perhaps, really, divine poetry is miraculous in different ways. One of the measures I think we can use today is the level of attachment, the scale of attachment and detachment that is expressed through the different styles of divine poetry. Amazingly, the Psalms, they offer such a vast range of emotions and attitudes towards God. And because they became part of the religious services, all these different attitudes were legitimized. And people could experience in synagogues, temples, and churches the feelings of doubt, frustration, hope, and faith were being expressed. Their frustrations, their doubts. And on another level, Perhaps behind the veil, the poems implied many mystical truths that cross cultures and centuries. Perhaps the Psalms played 
a role in making other poets feel bold and more and more able to give voice to their concerns against the dogma that everything is okay. There is no need to complain. The Psalms are full of complaint, dissension, and discord. As if the little human being has been given permission to throw its dreams in the path of the sublime being, the creator, the Lord of the universe. And when these little dreams are tossed into the path or the face of Allah, do these human dreams become divine? I can't think of a sacred text which accommodates such an outpouring of human angst and passion as the Psalms, which is vindicated as a divine revelation through the, through, through the three faiths of the book. And I wanted to read you some of them. Um, this is my little book that I used when I was a Christian. I read it till it was falling apart. And every day I read the Psalms. Now I'm going to tell you a spiritual experience that I had because I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had this experience. Back in the middle of the 1980s, I was reading the Psalms just because I picked it up. And I realized at some point the Psalms were reading me. I was not reading the Psalms. I was the dead thing, and this was the living thing. It was reading me. I was going through a very difficult marriage. I had a, a job as, an, as a cleaner in York, in, in this country. And one day my, my boss came to me and said there had been a dirty protest down in the toilets. Excrement smeared over the walls. Okay. He was kind enough to, to prepare me. I said, alhamdulillah. Well, I didn't use that language, but... And I went down there and I cleaned, and I was not alone. And I had no trouble cleaning it. And soon after that, I had the experience with the book. Everything is alive to a Sufi. So the book is alive. The book is divine. It comes from, not me, not from the printers, So it's always possible for the physical world to show us to be a mirror as if Allah is speaking right through that book. And this has happened to me with the Quran. I was looking at an open ancient Quran and I, even though I couldn't read the words, I knew it was speaking to me. I knew it was speaking to me. Personally, you know, not just me at that moment. Does that help? No? Who knows, eh? <laughs> That's the great thing about poetry. There's no rights or wrongs. A student asked me, please guide me to the right interpretation. It was a very good question. She's a very sincere student. It's not a question of getting to the right interpretation. It's the question of getting beyond the interpretation that you have now. 
is just getting one step beyond that. And there are different methods which that happens. Prayer, worship, fasting, seclusion. But one of them is reading or trying to write poetry that has, possesses a certain power. This is Psalm 130. I'm reading this one because it's famous as De Profuntis. Try when I'm reading it to hear echoes of what you believe or don't believe. Out of the deep have I called on you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Oh, let your ears consider well the voice of my complaint. If you, Lord, will be extreme in judging what is wrong. Oh, Lord, who may endure it? For there is mercy with you, and therefore you should be feared. I look for the Lord. My soul waits for him. In his word is my trust. My soul flees to the Lord before the morning watch. I say before the morning watch. O Israel, trust in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him there is plenteous redemption and he shall redeem Israel from all its sins. It's not easy in the present age to feel any mercy towards Israel. It's tough. And I feel it. I assure you, brothers and sisters, I feel it. But this is divine poetry. This is not politics. I love that idea, and you know it's from the Quran too, that without Allah's mercy, nothing could exist. And there it is in the Psalms. If you judge us too hard, no one could endure it. So we all are depending upon the Creator's mercy. To some extent, that solves the problem. Well, I won't go there. I don't know if it does solve the problem of good and evil, because many of the Psalms, what the uh, the singer is saying, how can you be mean to us who are good people and let bad people prosper? Why? But see how the psalm, the person, went from personal identification, I, to a whole nation. It started out with, hear my voice, and then it shifts from I to a whole nation of thousands and thousands of people. A very interesting kind of uh, transfer. Here's another psalm translated in the Jerusalem Bible, uh, 1966. So, so there's many, many translations uh, of these poems. And here it, God is called Yahweh. What I was reading you from is the King James Version from the early 
17th century, King James commissioned that the Bible and the Psalms, the Old Testament, the New Testament, be translated into English. Yahweh, you examine me and know me. You know if I'm standing or sitting. You read my thoughts from far away. Whether I walk or lie down, you are watching. You know every detail of my conduct. The word is not even on my tongue, Yahweh, before you know all about it. Close behind and close in front, you fence me round, shielding me with your hand. Such knowledge is beyond my understanding, a height to which my mind cannot attain. Where could I go to escape your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I climb to heaven, you are there. If I sink and lie in shallow, if I flew to the point of sunrise or westward across the sea, your hand would still be guiding me, your right hand holding me. If I asked darkness to cover me and light to become night around me, that darkness would be dark, not dark to you. Night would be as light as day. It is you who created my inmost being and put me together in my mother's womb. It's not an interesting phrase. Put me together in my mother's womb. And all these mysteries, for all these mysteries, I thank you for the wonder of myself, for the wonder of your works. That's from the Jerusalem Bible, uh, 1966. How are we doing for time? Oh, we're already behind schedule, right? We have to move on, sorry. Um, there are so many wonderful psalms. And one of the beautiful ideas is um, that Allah has made us lower than the angels to rise us above the angels, comes out in the psalms as well. And that children, that out of the mouth of babes have you spoken your strength. And some of these phrases are used in the Egil over and over again. Um, lines that are put in when Jesus is suffering come from the 22nd Psalm. So that's another little detail. Uh, the master poet Basho lived in Japan from 1644 to 1694. At the time, the emperor of Japan decided to close the borders, another Trump. But he succeeded and kept the outside world out for about three centuries until the Americans came along and said, you better open those borders or we're going to blow you up. Late in his life, 1689, Basho, with a companion, set out walking 1,233 miles. It took him two years to complete. What he wrote called the narrow road to the deep north, the narrow road to the interior, different translations, has become a celebrated work in Japanese literature. For our purpose, 
Basho's intention as a Buddhist novice attempting to gain enlightenment, satori, spiritual awakening, to free, free, free from his ego of belongings, of comforts, makes him a searcher of the eternal. And he writes divine poetry. At least since I was a young man, I've been inspired by these translations in English. And they've challenged my way of trying to be a more loving, dedicated, and respectful kind of mortal. The haiku dance, that they wear a thick veil, because haiku is only a very short poem. It's so short, you, can't, you can easily miss it. So the veil, to me, is its shortness. Their miniaturization of greatness makes them seem passing moments as insignificant as views out of speeding car's window. It takes commitment and trust to absorb such 17-syllable poems. In fact, it takes what the poems so often express, a deep sense of humility. I once wrote, the monumentalness of the miniature is revealed as we expand time. In 1682, his home was destroyed in a fire, and he only escaped with his life, only just. He, he ran into a river. The whole city was burning, and in the river he took some reeds, and he put them over his head like this to keep the heat away from him. After that, he realized he had no fixed abode in this world, and he started to wander. And he accepted what the Buddhist assertion is, that life is a house on fire. He received instruction from Zen Buddhists for a time and gained more detachment from the world. Even before he set out on his long journey, he was a famous poet and appeared in anthologies. And one of them is called Empty Chestnut. He wrote this in the introduction. What is important is to keep our mind high in the world of true understanding and returning to the world of our daily experience to seek with it the truth of beauty. No matter what we may be doing at a given moment, we must not forget it has a bearing upon our everlasting self, which is poetry. There's that phrase again, the everlasting self, which is poetry. One of the most renowned poems in Japanese is written by Basho, and it's called, are you listening? Old Pond, Frog Jumps In, Water Sound. Okay? Old Pond, Frog Jumps In, water sound. Could be old pond, frog jumps in, splash, kerplunk. Here's another translation of it. Breaking the silence of an ancient pond, a frog jumped into water, a deep resonance. There are books written about what that poem means. Now this is the veil to me, is that that smallness makes us almost at once discard it. And it takes time to get into that idea of what that poem is trying to say. 
Interestingly to me, as a poet, Basho came up. He was in meditation, and he heard the, the, the frog, and the words came to him, frog jumps in, water sound. They came first, and then he paused. And his friends around him, his companions, he was well supported by people, gave, you know, started to throw out other, other uh, kind of um, suggestions for the first line, because it wasn't yet a poem. It was just a fragment. So they're saying this and that about the flowers and you know, the trees and the clouds. And he just said, old pond. And one of his companions commented later, it is only he who has dug deep into the mystery of the universe that could choose a phrase like that. There's, a, there's something, isn't it? Certainly, the simplicity and connectedness is startling. Now, here is what, for me, was a moment of insight that the old pond is the depth of meditation or contemplation. And when the frog jumps into that meditation, it breaks it. But to the true person meditating, they absorb it back into their meditation. So some translators don't put in water sound, but water is essential to me to make that completeness, that unity. And you think about it. Think about that idea. How whatever happens to us in our life disturbs our surface. And yet, if we are really on this path to improve ourselves, we draw it back into ourselves. We don't reject it, we draw it in. We make it part of the whole, what disturbs us. Later, Basho wrote this, and if you understand it, I, I don't. I admit that. There is nothing you can see that is not a flower. There is nothing that you can think that is not the moon. There's also, uh, Basho became part of the sort of traditions of uh, Zen Buddhists, and it's called Basho's staff. And I think my sheikh would say the same thing to me. If you have a staff, I'll give you one. If you don't have one, I'll take it away from you. Well, how can I talk about the Rubaiyat in 10 minutes? I hope you know something about the Rubaiyat. Um, it's poems in uh, a form called Ruba, Rubai, very popular in the 11th and 12th century in Persia. They were translated in the 19th century by a man called Edward Fitzgerald. They are attributed to a, a mysterious astronomer, um, scientist, mathematician, philosopher called Omar Khayyam. And there's been movies about him, and so on. But how much Omar Khayyam actually wrote of these poems, we don't know. There are many different interpretations. Some people think they are hedonistic, and other people think 
there are examples of Sufi or uh, other kinds of mysticism. In fact, what we could say is, this is another veil. They stand on their own. What do they actually mean? They mention wine. They mention the cupbearer. What do they mean? Here is um, <clears throat> a literal translation of the, of the uh, Rubaiyat from Iran, 1969. But really, Omar Khayyam had no reputation until the West went crazy for him and had Omar Khayyam clubs, Omar Khayyam dinners, Omar Khayyam, you know, films, everything. So the Iranian government in 1935 said, oh, God, we can't stand this. So they built a monument to him, um, though they had no real knowledge about him. Now, this is, this is something um, fascinating to me. Um, this yogi was reading the Omar Khayyam, uh, the Rubaiyat, and he said he had a revelation where the words, the veil of the words just vanished, and he saw what was beyond them. Now, this is one of the most famous of those lines. Here it is, of, uh, translated by Edward Fitzgerald in the middle of the 19th century. Notice the rhyme, and I will help you with some of the weird words you probably won't know. Like, you don't know enow, do you? Enow means enough. Here with a loaf of bread beneath the bough, a flask of wine, a book of verse, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness. Wilderness is paradise enow. This is how this yogi or guru interprets it. Sitting in the deep silence of meditation with my mind concentrated on the tree of life and spiritual consciousness, I rest in the shade of peace, nourished by the life-giving bread, the life energy. I quaff the aged wine of divine intoxication, bringing, brimming the cast of my soul. Unceasingly, my heart recites the poetic inspirations of eternal divine love in this wilderness of deepest inner silence, whence all tumult or thronging desires have died away. I commune with you, my supreme beloved, the singing blessedness. Thou dost sweetly intone to me all desires satisfy, all desires satisfying music of wisdom. Ah, wilderness, free from the clamor of material desires. In this aloneness, I am not lonely. In this solitude of my inner silence, I have found the paradise of unending joy. Um, there's so much that can be said about the Rubaiyat, and I hope you'll ask some questions. But um, to quickly say, it's not every divine poetry that puts on such a veil that it can be actually interpreted the very opposite to what it means. When we hear the Psalms, we feel we know a little bit of what's going on. With Basho, we know he was a mystic. We know he was a poet. We know that it's about detachment from this world. But with the Psalms, the argument has been, is this sexual love or is this esoteric love? One of the beautiful things about the Psalms to me 
is how they celebrate women, how they celebrate the eternal feminine, and how time and time again they show uh, the beauty and grace of women. Reminding us of what the prophet, peace be upon him, said, that the best of you are the kindest, kindness, kindness to women. Um, <clears throat> Omar Khayyam was sometimes thought of as a, a terrible uh, rebel, uh, a horrible person, um, and he had to run away and go on Hajj because he was frightened of being assassinated, and there were definitely assassins at that time. Here is one of, I'd like to read some of these to you. Um, here is one of them translated by Edward Fitzgerald. In 1868, um, we might understand what it means, but imagine an audience in 18, middle of the 19th century in this country hearing these words. In fact, he had no fame whatsoever during the time of his life. It all came afterwards. And the Rubaiyat is so famous. And this is the way, and I'm going to say this, this is the way Allah has helped bring Islam to the West, is through a book like this that spoke to so many people about what they didn't understand, but they wanted to know more. So here is some of it. One moment in annihilation's waste, one moment of the well of life to taste, the stars are setting and the caravan draws to the dawn of nothing. Oh, make haste. When E. Caldwell, who had given the manuscript, the Persian manuscript, to Edward Fitzgerald, heard and read these poems, he was a staunch Christian, he was terrified because he knew what he had unleashed. When, when or where does nothing become meaningful? Um, here's one, one of the things I love, like I was saying about the Rubaiyat, and I'm sure one of the things that the people at that time feared was uh, in a very male environment was giving too much precedence to women. And here he says, this jug was once a love, once love sick like me. Oh, here's this glass. I'll use, pretend it's a jug, okay? Pretend it's a jug. This jug was love sick like me, tangled in a fair girl's locks. This handle, well, pretend there's a handle. <laughs> this handle you now see on its neck was his, was his hand on the neck of that girl. You understand what he's saying? We all die into the earth and we all become part of the pots and jugs and, and he's wanting us to be delicate with the earth because he says every particle could be a sweetheart's eye from the past. And he wrote these, who is he though? We don't know who he is. It could have been Omar Khayyam or it could have been many other people too who wrote these poems. Here's another one. If every particle of dust on a patch of earth was a sun cheek or brow, every particle of dust on a patch of earth was a sun cheek 
or brow of the morning star. Shake the dust off your sleeve carefully. That too was a delicate, fair face. I love it. I love that stuff. Um, here, he, here he is saying, I, if I'm drunk with, on forbidden wine, so I am. If I'm an unbeliever, a pagan, or an idolater, so I am. Every sect has its own suspicions of me. I myself am just who I am. So he, like many of divine poems, they want people not to concentrate on the particularities of faith, but on the generalities of love and sincerity as being far more important than the particularities. That's at least how I, I read what is said here. Um, how much time do I have now? No time, probably. How much time? Okay, here's some different translations of the Rubaiyat. Um, here's, here's one that makes me feel that he's talking about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or he's talking about Allah, perhaps, even, because Allah sometimes is referred to as the friend, is he not? Friend. One of his names? Friends. When you hold a meeting, you must, you must much remember the friend. When you drink successfully together, when my turn comes, turn the glass upside down. In cell and cloister, in monastery and synagogue, some fear hell and others dream of paradise. But no man who really knows the secret of his God has planted seeds like that in his heart. And sometimes, you know, when uh, he's talking about um, being condemned, Religiousists do not know thy mercy as we know it. Who's the we? A stranger cannot know you as does a friend. You say, sin, and I shall throw you into hell. Tell that to a person who does not know you. This is the belief again in, in Allah's utter mercy being so far above his anger which you can find in various hadiths. They say that I am a wine worshipper. I am. They say that I'm an adept. I am. Do not look so much at my exterior, for in my interior, I am. I am. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.